Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be joined by Dr. Carmen Martinez-Novo to talk about her book titled Undoing Multiculturalism, Resource Extraction and Indigenous Rights in Ecuador, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2021, which looks at a really interesting period in Ecuador's recent history, focusing particularly on the 2007 to 2017 period that on the one hand has this big presidentially led citizens revolution that talks about getting rid of colonialism and uh, prioritizing the rights of Afro-Indigenous people. Um, And yet on the other hand, as shown in this book, that's not actually what happened. And that's not actually what the presidential administration's policies really did on the ground. Um, And that's a really interesting puzzle um, that this book tackles and unpicks and helps us understand. So I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Carmen Martinez-Novo to the podcast to discuss it. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you very much for uh, discussing my book and having me here. Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Yeah, there are many answers to that, uh, but I'll... I'll use one one of them because um, I'm actually originally from Spain. I'm not from Latin America. And um, I think um, I have been interested in this topic that I'm um, discussing in the book since I was a child. I come from a background in Spain of the Spanish left. Like even my great-grandfather was an anarchist. My grandfather was a socialist. My father fought against the Franco dictatorship. And when I was a child in my neighborhood was a neighborhood in which there was a lot of uh, social movements that were of the left. And suddenly some um, Roma people move into my neighborhood and I saw the reaction of the people there with the, they didn't want, didn't want to allow the children, uh, the Roma children to go to our schools and people were demonstrating against them. And I think that's a kind of a reason why I have been interested throughout my career on questions of race and racism and also particularly of how 
this puzzle, as you say, of why people who are interested in social justice and equality could at the same time have these stereotypes about other people. Um, so my work um, throughout my career has been comparing how uh, ethnic groups are seen from the outside and represented from the outside and how that contrasts to the way they understand themselves. So my book on Mexico is, is about that. It's entitled Who Defines Indigenous? And it's about how indigenous people in the Mexican border are seen from outside. Uh, and um, that preoccupation continued with this uh, book on, on Ecuador. The other thing is, uh, well, it's a long-term um, research that I did in this book. Uh, uh, the research has been going on for almost like 20 years. Uh, and... Um, I started in the neoliberal period looking at uh, what has been called um, neoliberal multiculturalism, the question of um, pro-ethnic policies uh, uh, under this kind of extreme form of capitalism. And I was always very critical of them and always look at the tensions uh, during that period. But then I was in Ecuador when Correa was elected and um, I, w I went through all the transformations there. I was living there at the time. And um, it was very differ different from the earlier period. And it was very paradoxical, as you said. Very w One thing that called my attention, and that's kind of a long-term preoccupation of mine, is the contrast between what it seems and what it actually is. Mm -hmm. And particularly, like, people who uh, apparently are concerned with social justice, but then... Um, do uh, otherwise in their uh, daily practices. So I think that's that's part of the reason why I decided to to write this book, in which a very important part of the book is to look at indigenous issues from outside and inside, from uh, the sites of power and from uh, the uh, native communities at the same time and contrast those two uh, points of view. Mm. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think you actually have not only explained why you're interested in writing the book, but also exactly what drew me to wanting to read it, which is always being curious when there's a situation where what it says is happening and what is actually happening don't match up. Um, and so I think that that makes a lot of sense of kind of a driving uh, reason to investigate this. And as you said, look at these issues from multiple points of view and perspectives um, as you've done in the book. And hopefully we're, we'll do a little bit of a tour of the book to see some of those contrasts and paradoxes and hopefully understand them a bit better. Um, but before we kind of start on looking at those different sides, um, I think there's some important foundational understandings to discuss, which have to do with some key terms you talk about and definitions. Um, and there are four in particular that I think were really key to understanding everything that comes next. Um, so I'll probably list them all out now, but uh, if you if you give us a few of them and need reminding, that's fine. <laughs> I've got them written in front of me. Um, but the first is post-neoliberal, multiculturalism, then extractivism, and finally indigenismo. Can you help us understand what these terms are in this context? Uh, yeah, let's start with post-neoliberal. So... Um... There was like a worldwide reaction to neoliberalism. So I think to understand post-neoliberal first, we have to define neoliberalism, actually, which I understand as a set of um, 
policies, a kind of a style of capitalism that starts around the 1970s that is based on uh, on free trade. Uh, that's one, one thing. Uh, is based on um, capitalists taking power from uh, also the working class uh, by uh, making labor more precarious through strategies like soft contracting or temporary contracting or part-time and things like that, where uh, there was a core maybe of full-time workers with benefits, but a big uh, kind of growing population of people with precarious uh, uh, forms of um, uh, precarious uh, jobs. And uh, there are other characteristics of of neoliberalism, but... uh, in the case of Latin America, also, for instance, a kind of the state becoming a, a smaller instead of having like a say in the economy and having public enterprises and subsidizing parts of the economy, the state restricting itself to just kind of regulation. So there, there are a number of characteristics of neoliberalism. I don't do, I mean, it's, it's a very... Um, long conversation, so I will focus more on post-neoliberal, but there is a moment in which uh, populations throughout the world kind of get uh, resistant to this kind of of policies. And I think Latin America is one of the first regions to resist uh, neoliberalism. And then around the year, kind of the end of the 1990s, or maybe a little bit early, social movements are resisting neoliberalism. But at the end of the 1990s, a number of governments are elected that are of the left in Latin America. Some people call them the pink tide or the turn to the left or socialism of the 21st century. And this is part of what I discuss in the book because these names have a meaning and they kind of reflect the position of the speaker depending on whether people use pink tide or socialism of the 21st century or turn to the to the left. But all these governments are elected on the basis that the population... Uh, the majority of the population in these countries have been impoverished and is tired of, of these uh, policies and resistant to privatization and to the discontinuation of subsidies and so on. That's Latin America. In the case of, um, I mean, that's kind of a worldwide uh, discussion also, because in the case of Europe and the United States, there is also movements around, and that gets stronger around 2008 with the 2008 um, crisis in which you have movements like um, the Indignados in Spain or Occupy Wall Street in the United States or um, the movement in Greece uh, of uh, Agasti Komenoi. I'm I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing correctly, but all these kind of left-wing movements that are looking for alternative uh, ways. Uh, So there was a, a whole discussion in the bibliography of whether this um political movements and uh, when they came to power in certain places in the world, whether they had been able or not to overcome uh, neoliberalism. So my position there in, in, in the case of Ecuador is that uh, what happened under Correa is not the same as what was in place under neoliberalism. It's different, but it's not necessarily a an improvement or better. And that's not because I'm defending neoliberalism, but it's because neoliberalism had a side that was the liberalism. It was um, 
even though it, there was an impoverishment and the inequalities were not overcome, there was kind of a tolerance towards a diverse opinions and increasing participation and so on that doesn't um, happen in um, in the case of Ecuador after uh, Correa is elected. So, um, well, they use, um, and then you have to see how, how the terms are used, but uh, Correa himself and his government used post-neoliberal to claim that they had overcome neoliberalism. But I prefer to use another term because a lot of people use post-neoliberalism in the sense of um, they overcame neoliberalism and they have better policies. And as I say in the book, I prefer to use um, nationalist extractivism because I think what was very important in the case of Korea and also some other governments uh, in the region is the nationalism, the kind of... um, the idea of having a bigger, stronger, more controlling state, and also the a focus on the extraction of uh, natural resources. I think those two things were very, very important. And there was like a rhetoric that was uh, of the left, uh, but uh, that didn't necessarily match the policies. So that's kind of the debate around post-neoliberal. There is a lot to, to say about um uh, that but I, I prefer to change the term, but I have to explain it in the in the book. But that's one of the least um, parts of the of my work that is sometimes misunderstood because people think that when I criticize Correa, I am arguing that he's actually neoliberal and not post neoliberal. But I think he's very different from neoliberal. For instance, his estate became much more much stronger. The state grew. He hired a lot of uh, government officials. He tried to micromanage a lot of the territory and the policies as opposed to the neoliberal state, which is a state that is more kind of um, laissez-faire state. So Korea is very different. He's micromanaging. He's much more authoritarian. He's not about kind of recognition and participation. He's about kind of managing the identities and the social movements and all that. So I think it's it's a very different moment. And I experienced it as a citizen there because I was living there. And the daily life kind of totally changed from the previous uh, moment to the moment of uh, after Korea was was elected. So I think it's very different, but it's not neoliberalism and it's not necessarily better without meaning that neoliberalism was good. But there is a side of neoliberalism, which is kind of this this tolerance, this participation that changes when the government becomes more, what I call in the book, semi-authoritarian. It still has elections, but uh, there is kind of a a very strict control of civil society that I try to go over in the book in in a lot of detail. So that would be post-neoliberalism. Oh my God, I hope I... The other terms are are maybe not that... That's one of the most kind of difficult and controversial. But 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 it's really important. Um, So I'm glad you've explained that. Um, But yeah, shall we move to extractivism? Because you've already mentioned that one. Yeah, multiculturalism, I will be very brave because we skipped it. And with multiculturalism, I mean the state policies to kind of include ethnic populations through education, through autonomy, territorial autonomy, through anti-discrimination laws and, and so on. 
So that's what I call multiculturalism. And the problem with neoliberal multiculturalism is, is the idea of having a policies that try to be inclusive and promote participation, but at the same time not having a redistribution of resources uh, of a kind of, um, yeah, like, like keeping the poverty intact while trying to include the populations from a more symbolic point of view. So that would be the multiculturalism. Extractivism is a term that doesn't exist in English, but it's starting to exist <laughs> because uh, it's a term coming from Latin America, actually. So you can translate as natural resource extraction, uh, but um, it's becoming more and more important because it's a big debate in Latin America and throughout the, the global South. It's basically, uh, it has different definitions, but one of it, like the street definition, is a system based on the in which kind of the whole state and society is focused or depends on the extraction of a few natural resources, like basically oil and mining. Sometimes in the case of Ecuador, it's copper, but it can be uh, some other things. It can be natural gas or it can be um, coal. And the idea is that how that uh, focus on the extraction of natural resources it goes beyond kind of what happens in the sites of extraction or it, it, it has many different repercussions in, in society. It changes as many people have studied before. Like it changes the political dynamic when a government doesn't depend on the taxes of citizens, but it depends on, um, on the revenues from resources. It doesn't have to negotiate as much with society. And that's coming from uh, some political um, theories, um, or um, there are many, many other um, uh, sides. And uh, some people have argued that um, we have to have like a wider view of extraction of natural resources, not only kind of focus on what happens in the particular places where uh, mountains are kind of uh, blown away <clears throat> to extract coal or where uh, oil is extracted and pollution is left there and people get sick and so on. That's one very important side of it. Then you have climate change, which is which is a really <clears throat> a central side of it. But there are other effects at the societal level, and that's what I'm trying to, to look at. Uh, some authors argue uh, about kind of whole cultures of extraction. And sometimes extraction happens in rural places, so urban populations are not that aware. Although I think younger people, uh, and in general, kind of, uh, we are becoming much more aware uh, of climate change and, and the effects of extraction. Uh, but um, there, there are many that are not um, that um, kind of um, clear cut. For instance, how, how do you connect extraction of natural resources to intercultural education? Well, I, I do the connection in, in the book because intercultural education is the way indigenous people raise their political consciousness and their cohesion as a group and it strengthens the social movement and then the social movement is a movement that fights extraction. So, But some of the things are not obvious, so I wanted to raise that, that idea. So I look at extractivism in a narrow sense as the extraction of a few resources because actually what happened, interestingly, under the 30th 
turn to the left in Latin America is that those countries uh, became much more dependent on one resource, maybe on, on oil or mining and so on. Um, they kind of uh, reprimarized their economies. They became became much more dependent than before, which is also kind of paradoxical because the left has always argued that extraction pollutes and that extraction exploits workers and that is controlled by transnational companies or by the states. So it's very interesting that the left would be pushing this program. But on the other hand, is how they uh, finance their governments. And there is another side that is interesting. I argue in the, in the book that because... The countries, and I mean Ecuador, Venezuela, Bolivia, for instance, wanted also to become more independent from the United States in order to kind of change their policies away from neoliberalism and from the kind of pressures of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. They try to become independent, but the way to become independent is... And the reason they could become independent is because they had the money from oil and mining at the time, which was also connected to Asia because it was China was the best, uh, the the most important investor and also a customer for for their uh, resources. So it's it's very interesting. They want to become independent. They want to overcome these um, bad policies, but they, their only way to do it is by depending on one co- commodity that is going to marginalize part of the population and is going to pollute the environment and is go to, going to cause climate change. So that's kind of uh, something interesting about extractivism. And the last thing, indigenismo, relates to the first thing that I was discussing when I said why I wrote the book. Indigenismo is basically the policies and the ideas of non-Indians in Latin America about indigenous people. So, uh, and this is important to say in Europe because I have seen in Spain some scholars who think indigenismo is what indigenous people write. But I think they have to look at the long history of indigenismo in Latin America. It starts in the 19th century or even before, but it becomes very strong in the 1930s. And the idea is non-Indigenous people thinking about what they used to call the Indigenous problem and how to solve it and how to include Indigenous people. And it includes two things that are very important to me in the book and also throughout my my other writings before this book. That is um, what I see as a dichotomy that is also very interesting between open racism, like stereotypes that are uh, openly racist of indigenous people, like indigenous people are dirty or uh, uh, passive or other things. And then the more paternalistic, and this is a very important uh, uh, point in my work uh, throughout all, all my academic career, is to look at how there can be racism that is not hostile, but is um, supposedly cares and tries to help these populations. But the way of helping the populations is by um, constructing them as basically children and minors that need to be helped, therefore as inferior. So I look at the racism there, but very often it's not taken as racism because it's supposed to be care and, and concern and love for these uh, groups. 
So that's something that, that I think is really key. It comes from the colonial legacy. It comes from the hacienda, from the, the way the society was structured in colonial and post-colonial times. And I think it's key to understand inter-ethnic relations in Latin America. And I also think it has not been studied enough because of the lack of focus of many of us um, scholars on the people on power. We have mostly focused on the subaltern populations, on the um, vulnerable or on the disempowered, and not so much on those, on the white populations and the ones that are in power. So that's why I think paternalism has not been uh, highlighted, although there is some work, but uh, that's another kind of big uh, theoretical point of of my work. Mm -hmm. And a very important one. Um, So I'm really glad that you've uh, explained that for us and kind of gone into the nuance of it and going, hang on a second, Um, we might have this assumption, but it's worth taking another look. Um, So now that we've kind of laid out some of these key theoretical points, these key kind of um, interventions really into the arguments and the scholarship, I'd love to now sort of not quite jump around through the book, but a little bit, um, I guess like a highlights tour of picking out particular parts where you show, you talk about something from sort of the presidential side and go, okay, well, here's what they've said they're doing. And then moving to the next bit and going, well, actually, what actually ended up happening? What was the impact of this? And you do this really well throughout the book because we we show them together rather than sort of one half of the book is the presidential side one half of his reaction the fact that they're intertwined shows um how in a lot of ways contingent these things are how it's sort of responsive and reacting and changing um as things do and it's not purely something that's happening in the Korea administration as you said the colonial legacy there's all sorts of other legacies being tied up with this um so i hope we can kind of give that uh, give that taste as well of, of how this has been woven together um, by going through some of the pieces. So I'd love to start off with, um, if we really want to talk about kind of pomp and circumstance and the big symbolic things, you rightly show that where and how Korea chose to become president, to have the ceremony of being president, is really significant in this discussion. Why? Yeah, uh, that's a bit. Well, one of the things I do with the, the book is this investigation into power and the people in power. And um, that connects to the first thing how, why I wrote this book and kind of my positionality regarding the book. Uh, for eight years, I was a professor at FLAXO, which is uh, the Latin American Faculty for the Social Sciences in Ecuador. And so I had a very particular position because. Um, Correa was an academic. He actually taught some classes at Flaxo, and a lot of his government came out from my university. Even we had the students who became kind of government import, government officials in important uh, positions there. So I had the opportunity to have access. That's one thing. Because one of the things with studying power is the question of access and representation. It's difficult to have access to them. They don't want to be studied and they also control their own representation. Uh, so um, so that was kind of, of tricky. The representation I, I can talk more about later, but the access. So I was able to be in the first um, first time that Correa became president, his first investiture, but I was also in the second. I was present in the second. Interestingly, the first one was open to the public, so everybody could go, but not many people went because it it was in a very kind of um, 
faraway place. And in the second one, it was closed. But uh, interestingly, like when we were kind of driving there, they told us, uh, well, this is closed. You cannot come in. And um, I'm very resourceful as a <laughs> kind of an ethnographer. So I said, well, we are from Flaxo. And I showed my, it was just, I was just trying. So I said, I showed my Flaxo kind of ID. And they said, okay, Flaxo, come in. And they let us in, even though we weren't close to the to the government. So I was able to, to visit the two the two presidential inaugurations. The first one was very interesting to me because at that time it, we weren't yet sure of what, what would go on. But I was also lucky because before Korea decided to do it in a very particular community, it's a community in the highlands that is populated by indigenous, by Quechua-speaking peasants, people who speak Quechua and also um, Spanish. And uh, he decided to go there because he was a, a kind of um, lay Salishan missionary for a time in that community. And he are, kind of he used that experience to demonstrate that he had a deep connection to the indigenous world. In Ecuador, the indigenous movement was very, very strong. Therefore, he tried to have an kind of make an alliance with them, but it didn't work out because they wanted to go to the elections independently. It was right after Evo Morales was elected in Bolivia, so they wanted to try with an indigenous candidate, but Correa wanted to run with them. He couldn't, but then it was very important to Correa to show his links to the indigenous world and to the left, because he actually doesn't have a background in leftist politics. And what he used as his background was this kind of past uh, collaborating with liberation uh, theology as a kind of progressive uh, Catholic. So he decided to do it in that particular community. But I, I was very lucky because I had done fieldwork before in that community, before Korea was known or anything. So it was just like a coincidence. So I knew the people there. And what called my attention is we decided to go there um, and we traveled there in very early in the morning. And when we arrive, we see that um, the kind of the, the um, main square of the town is closed to the public and only important people can enter and important people is mostly white people so that was the first paradox like the, that event represented a lot to me it's like he tries to do an event in the heart of indigenous ecuador but the indigenous don't have like a, an active role and cannot even enter into their own uh, towns square except for like maybe a couple of authorities and i also show that he didn't give a voice to to the indigenous people, they didn't even speak in the event. But it was a whole show because all the government. I mean, um, Hugo Chavez came by helicopter, and also Evo Morales and some other people. And the helicopters came to this little kind of small town in the middle of the Andes. <laughs> so that was very. And there was a lot of people there of the left and artists and intellectuals. So it was kind of very very interesting. We could have. I, w- I mean, since uh, we are resourceful, we could have negotiated to be inside with the important people, maybe like the same way I got to the second presidential inauguration, like showing the Flaxo ID or something. But we decided not to. We, I decided to be with the people and see how they were looking at the event from, 
from their side. But the interesting thing is that the people, like a, particularly a group of young women that I knew from my earlier fieldwork, instead of being mad that they were kind of excluded from their own town, they were happy because people in power had never been there before. So that was also interesting uh, to me. Uh, so, but I think it was very, very symbolic. And then I show some other kind of uh, events uh, that uh, I had access to. For instance, another event that was very shocking at the beginning of the government was uh, this um, this event where the Secretary of Development explained to civil society their development goals and invited all the actors of civil society, including the Catholic Church, the indigenous majors, uh, a lot of different kind of the intellectuals, the NGOs, everybody was there. And then they had these uh, non-indigenous people dressed as indigenous representing the indigenous nationalities, but with kind of these signs that had the government's messages. So that was also very shocking to me. I, and I went with a friend who was, he was a, um, he he was my PhD student. He's indigenous, one of the first indigenous PhDs in Ecuador. And now he's the dean of a, the assistant dean of a, of a university there. He went with me and we were both like, oh my God. I mean, there was so much difference because from one moment to the other, the indigenous were not actors. They were just background. And and that and that was after all the nineties when the indigenous became actors in in Ecuador. So so that was is. But the, I think it, it, I was lucky also to have access and um, and kind of my position as an academic there helped me in, in having access to these groups, not only to the events but also to talk with some people or to know who they were before they became officials. Or we also sometimes got some information from former students who were hired from the government and kind of, I have one article, but it's about Mexico, but my article is called, we are the government, but we are against the government. But we, we found many examples of that in Ecuador, people who were working for the government, but at the same time didn't agree with everything that happened and they wanted to talk. And so all these kind of informal informations were very, very interesting. Mm. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I bet, yeah. Um, and especially the idea of being able to flash your university badge, and that lets you into an inauguration. Um, where you can then watch everything that's happening, which is really, really interesting for what is there and what is not there and how things are being presented. Um, but it goes beyond the sort of symbolic side. You give a bunch of examples in the book of how the actual policies of the Korea administration um, marginalize indigenous groups, uh, people and movements. And one of the aspects that I thought was really interesting because it can often kind of go under the radar is the use of the census and population statistics, right? This can often be like a back office. Oh, that's boring. You know, it doesn't necessarily make the headlines. Um, but you show that this actually has a really big impact in Ecuador. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about 
how these things were used to marginalize indigenous indigenous movements under Korea? Yeah, that was very interesting. And sometimes research happens by coincidence, <laughs> as I said, for the events. But uh, there was an, an academic who asked me to write something about the census, and it's something that I hadn't thought about before. But there was he was writing kind of a, a special issue about censuses in Latin America. So I started to work on it because it was kind of a, something that... Um, this group decided to do. It was not something that I had thought about before because as you can see reading the book, I'm not a quantitative researcher. I'm mostly qualitative. I'm an anthropologist. But um, yeah, I started to do the research on the census and I started to see so many interesting uh, things happening in in Ecuador. In, in terms of Korea, well, there were different uses of the census. Um, one it was um, this well, this whole debate in Ecuador about the undercount of the indigenous population, which was very another paradox. Ecuador is seen from outside as an indigenous and an in, heavily indigenous country. For decades and decades, everybody has repeated that forty percent of the population is indigenous, and then when you have the census. Uh, the population, the numbers of indigenous are very, very low depending on what you use, whether you use language or you use a self-identification. But a particularly, and the self-identification, well, Latin American governments have used language for a long time as a way to count indigenous populations. And I look at the history of why Latin American governments do that. And that goes back to the early 20th century when they decided that uh, kind of in opposition to the Nazis and biological racism in Europe, uh, Latin American governments, particularly under the leadership of Mexico uh, and the Mexican Revolution, they didn't want to focus on race. They wanted to focus on culture because they thought focusing on race was racism, was colonial. So that's why they use a language, although sometimes kind of cultural language are proxies for for race, and many people have have discussed that. But even with language, the the numbers were very small. And um, under Korea, uh, they introduced, uh, well, a little bit before Korea in 2000, they introduced self-identification, which is, something that the United Nations had been pushing and is also, it's not also only coming from United Nations, it's coming from indigenous movements themselves. The idea that uh, who is the state uh, to define who is indigenous, uh, people should be allowed to self-define because for instance, there are many people who, particularly younger people, they don't, or urban indigenous who don't speak the languages anymore, but they still have the identity and want to define themselves as indigenous. So self-identification was pushed, but under with self-identification, you even had a decrease of the number of, of indigenous people because being indigenous still has a lot of stigma in Latin America, so many people don't want to define themselves as indigenous. One thing that happened under Korea also was that um, after 2009, there was a big conflict between the indigenous movements and, and Korea. 
uh, and part of the conflict was, uh, I think there were three main issues. One was mining, the other was water, and the third was uh, agrarian reform. And um, Correa wanted to push um, large-scale mining because of the budget and the uh, indigenous movement as a movement opposed mining. Uh, he didn't redistribute the water, which was a very contentious issue. And think about climate change. Water is becoming more and more scarce. And particularly in countries where they are producing a lot of uh, water-intensive uh, crops like flowers or broccoli or a kind of these non-traditional agro-exports. And uh, the rich people are uh, kind of uh, monopolizing the water. So water was a big issue for, for peasants. And uh, they didn't see Correa as redistributing the water. They saw Correa as pushing the mining that was also going to pollute the water. So the water was involved in that. And he was not doing that kind of um, sweeping agrarian reform. So there was this opposition. And then many people in the indigenous movement were being kind of stigmatized and, and um, prosecuted and um, through uh, the law and uh, harassed also through informal kind of uh, strategies uh, and so on. So many people started to also not want to define themselves as indigenous in the census because they were, they were suspicious. So the numbers lower. And another thing that I discovered that was very interesting, I, I wasn't aware of that before I studied the census, is, is that indigenous people are very resistant to being counted because um, in colonial times, they were counted because they paid taxes and the white people didn't pay taxes, like the mestizos or the or the. Uh, Creoles didn't pay taxes and only the indigenous paid taxes and when they counted them was for tax purposes so they don't like it's interesting how this memory has been preserved so more and more that the United Nations was to convince people that they have to be counted in order to get their rights they don't believe it so they kind of are resistant to be counted and the one thing that I look at um, is the the comparison with the Afro-Ecuadorian movement. The Afro-Ecuadorian movement never had this experience of being counted uh, in order to be taxed. And they kind of um, become organized later in history in, in the case of Ecuador. And uh, they are much more uh, interested in being counted and also because they um, more their leaders more directly associate also being counted with having anti-discrimination and affirmative action laws. So I think one strategy that uh, Correa used was to divide the indigenous from other minorities uh, that were more kind of pro-government than the indigenous. And I explained uh, very carefully why, because this point is, is controversial. Um, that's another thing. But one of the ways also that Correa used the census was to say that, um, to claim that indigenous were a minority. Once he undercounted the indigenous or once the indigenous didn't want to be counted, he said, well, you're only 7%, so you don't have a right to have a say in the policies because we, we non-indigenous are much more people. And he started to build, kind of continue with this idea of the nation the indigenous as being marginal or even outside the nation, and the nation being a mestizo nation. It was very strong in in, um, in Correa's uh, discourse, but also kind of the division between indigenous and, and the Afro-population. And uh, another kind of division, well, there are other two different, two very interesting things. 
that happened in there. One is that the uh, kind of the how oh, the the um, kind of how disconnected to to the discussions on poverty. One of the things that the left did in general in Latin America, but particularly Correa, is to claim that um, they were not um, promoting a, a pro-ethnic policies because they were more interested in uh, poverty and that if they targeted poverty and they improve uh, the standard of living of the population, they could be helping indigenous and Afro uh, people. But uh, when you look at the at the statistics on poverty, one thing that I found also by coincidence working with an Afro-Ecuadorian intellectual who was collaborating with me was that the statistics on poverty had been kind of manipulated. So I present that in the in the chapter and that actually indigenous poverty had um, not decreased or decreased less depending on um, whether you read one side of the statistics or the other. Uh, but it was very interesting in, that in a country that was claiming to overcome colonialism, they would not prioritize the poverty of the indigenous population. However, if you look at the statistics for the Afro-Ecuadorian population, they are much, they are uh, worse than the white and the mestizo population, but they are much better than the indigenous. And I'm not claiming that there is more racism against indigenous than against Afro. I think there is a lot of racism uh, and violence against the Afro-Ecuadorian population. Uh, some of the kind of um, way this can be explained is because the Afro-Ecuadorian population is most, more urban and the uh, indigenous population is more rural. So there is a huge rural-urban gap also. And the other thing that I discovered that I found interesting is that um, I'm kind of losing my track of, of thought, but that, but it's, it's something important that uh, regarding the, the division between indigenous and Afro populations and urban and, and rural, but now I'm losing that. That's fine. <laughs> that, well, I'll um, remember it later. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, I, I wanted to, because one of the things that I thought was interesting in addition, um, I'm really glad you raised the point about poverty um, because that does seem kind of, an odd thing to kind of get left out. But in these discussions around kind of, well, the data says you're only 7%, so we can ignore what you want. You show in the book that one of the other outcomes of this um, sort of reframing of whose opinion counts, whose voice counts in public debates was around education. Um, and that this had some really, really big impacts, particularly around policies for intercultural bilingual education, the EIB system, um, that was dismantled under Korea. So there's, can you sort of explain to us sort of how and why this um, reframing of the indigenous population as not being a big part kind of leads to this particular educational, the piece of the educational system being taken away, and then what were the consequences of that? Yeah, that's that's very that's another point in which uh, things are not what they seem. Because according to Correa, he made all the uh, education intercultural, and he was supporting intercultural education. But when you look on the ground to what is happening, is is very different. 
uh, there were different things that happened. Education, as I said before, is very important for political consciousness and political organization and very much linked to the strength of the communities uh, because kind of the people who who thought about uh, intercultural education in the 1970s and 80s saw the community as very important for intercultural education because when colonialism happened, colonialism destroyed the larger kind of ethnic uh, structures but only allowed the community to subsist in the form of the Republicas de Indios or Pueblos de Indios, the Indian towns. So it was kind of the only kind of a form of indigenous identity that survived colonialism. So it was very, very important as a as an institution to preserve the language, the culture, and the social organization. So that was very important for intercultural education. So what happens under Correa? And there was also something very special about intercultural education in Ecuador. It was the only system in Latin America that was autonomous uh, from the beginning when it was created. So the indigenous organizations were able to uh, hire the teachers, to uh, develop the curriculum, uh, decide on their, on their own system of education, which has to do with the particular history of Ecuador and how, how the system started. Uh, and obviously the indigenous people were working with their allies on that, the progressive Catholic Church, the ethno-linguists, the anthropologists, uh, some uh, kind of advocates that were uh, working uh, with uh, with them. But uh, so the first thing that Correa does is uh, and is directly connected to natural resource extraction. Once the indigenous movement starts to demonstrate against uh, um, the mining law and the water law, he uh, discontinues the autonomy of the system, which means that uh, indigenous people don't have a control on the curriculum, on the materials, or on the hiring. And I say that this is very important because the Ministry of Education, and the Ministry of Education is not indigenous, it's a white mestizo person, mostly white, I would say. In that case, in that moment, he was a white man. Um, so they, um, he would make decisions on hirings, on um, on curriculum and on materials. And the first thing they did is to kind of change the leadership of the education system. So they did it in two ways. Uh, one was kind of changing the authorities, uh, mostly buying um, their, like they would pay them to retire to some of them or they would fire them and change them. And basically they changed them for either mestizos or younger people who were closer to the regime, who were indigenous. So there was a replacement of authorities. Uh, the law, the new law of education also forbade um, the, um, the uh, kind of education system to intervene in politics. And this was very. This went al, happened at the same time that the government was also fighting the um, public education union in in Ecuador. More, I mean, the the union that was not only for the indigenous system but for the whole system of of education. The education unions in Ecuador were Maoist, they were kind of uh, Marxist, very militant. So Correa and his government understood these uh, uh, teachers' unions as very, very central in political opposition to the government. And he tried to dismantle them in different ways. But in the case of, of the indigenous um, 
dismantle, kind of change their authorities, uh, retire the teachers who were kind of historical indigenous leaders, forbid political activities in the, in the system. That was a first uh, a phase of what uh, they did uh, and give more control to the Ministry of Education on the policies, the curriculum and the books. Uh, and he changed the books and the books, instead of being these books that had been developed throughout a couple of decades with the help of these ethnolinguists and experts and progressive church, uh, he changed it for other books that were developed by the Korea government that, uh, for instance, couldn't discuss indigenous struggles and the history of the indigenous movement. And they discuss other things like summa causae, like this idea of good living, a very abstract that was more linked to the Korea government and not so much to the historical struggles of the indigenous people. So he tried to control what was discussed in the system. He tried to control who was leading the system. And the third step that happened in 2013 was when they started closing the, the schools in the communities. And they, um, the government of Korea um, uh, closed uh, up to 13,000 community schools. The idea was that the community schools were bad quality, were escuelitas de la pobreza, he called them, like poverty schools. And the way they did it is the ministry decided to close every school that had only one teacher for all the different grades or that had that where teachers had less than 25 students per teacher. So all the smaller schools were closed. And this meant uh, all the schools in the rural, in indigenous communities and in the rural world. And, uh, well, according to them, they were not closed. They were consolidated. So the students were relocated to larger schools, many of them called schools of the millennium, and that relates to kind of United Nations millennium uh, goals. This, and the idea of the of these larger schools was that they would be higher quality because they had more technology uh, and they were larger and they had more teachers and better prepared teachers. And uh, But interestingly, a lot of these schools were located in bigger towns, which were mestizo towns. So what you had is indigenous children having to walk for two hours or, or more. So you were a child and you had to, you were a five-year-old or a six-year-old or a 12-year-old, you had to walk from your community two hours to school in the morning and come back two hours more of, of walking. So that was one effect. I mean, it was dangerous for the kids because sometimes um, my informants or collaborators argued that these people decided on the these people from the from the ministry decided on the colonization with a GPS. They had no idea of the territory. So the kids had to cross rivers or mountains <laughs> or very dangerous roads and stuff like that eh, to go to school. Eh, so eh, this was one side. The other side was nutrition, like kids in communities, the mothers came to the schools and brought eh, nutritious food for the kids. But if they had to go two hours away, the kids were just like eating junk food or not eating at all during the whole school day until they came back home at night. So they had, it had an in, impact on nutrition that one of my, my indigenous PhD student has uh, studied more, more closely and many, many other sites. But ultimately what happened is that 
since there was no school in the community, people just migrated because they wanted their children to go to school. So if they had family in the capital of the province or they had family in Quito, they just left the communities. And there are some maps that you look at that are incredible. For instance, some maps of the northern Amazon, and you see all the schools that disappear, and they are leaving whole oil blocks empty of people. So the other, I mean, I didn't make this connection. It was a liberation theology priest that made it for me. And he said, these areas are getting depopulated and are being open to the companies. And this, and then I look at how they, specifically uh, the Korea government also targeted communities that were resisting mining and, and other things. So there was like a, a real attack on communities themselves. And the communities were kind of the the uh, center or the way in which the indigenous movement had been so strong in Ecuador. So that's some of the of the things that happened. And I have to also credit some um, some Ecuadorian scholars, uh, particularly women who who work on um, uh, who work on education at Universidad Andina, uh, Rosemary Teran and, and Soledad Vena who were the ones who made me aware of it. It was almost like a cultural genocide that was happening, but uh, we academics uh, outside of Ecuador had not seen it until the, the uh, people uh, working in Ecuador made us aware of, of that. Well, thank you for making even more of us aware of that um, through the book and obviously through discussing it in the interview. Um, it's really helpful to see how all the pieces go together and really understand um, some of the yeah what, what what's happening it's not certainly simple um, so thank you for explaining it and on the subject of things that are not simple um, I want to as we get towards the end of the interview kind of circle back a bit to something you mentioned at the beginning is something you've been interested in throughout your research um, around the idea of sort of the spectrum of racist speech and behavior and policy from things that are really openly racist to things that maybe don't get seen as racist, but really can be and have some really problematic impacts. Um, and so I was wondering if uh, you could tell us about state ventriloquism in Ecuador under the Correa policy and kind of what that has looked like and then how that's devolved into more openly racist um, speeches and policies? Yeah, I think I link ventriloquism to this uh, paternalism that I talked about before, but it's a kind of a specific kind of ventriloquism. And this was uh, is a term that was um, used and uh, um, kind of um, developed by an Ecuadorian uh, sociologist, Andres Guerrero, who actually have also uh, worked in, in collaboration in the United Kingdom with, with academic theirs, and he's living currently in Spain. But uh, I want to credit him with this, this term. But uh, it's very interesting, this question of ventriloquism. Um, and it's very common. I also saw it in Mexico before because I did my my previous book is, is on Mexico, but they didn't call it ventriloquism. So the term is, is coming from the Ecuadorian social science. Uh, it's this idea that um, non-Indians have kind of the, the right and even the duty to talk for indigenous people. But this dynamic renders the indigenous as passive non-actors and silent. And I trace this uh, 
this uh, idea to the colonial past, uh, and also kind of Andres Guerrero does that, when uh, indigenous people uh, were um, defined legally as minors who could not represent themselves or speak for themselves. And this is kind of the origin of the whole paternalism, the understanding of indigenous as minors. Think about, for instance, Brazil, in which indigenous people of the Amazon were legally defined as minors until the constitution of 1989. So this has gone on in Latin America legally until very, very recently. One of my ideas about... Um, Racism is that it's not only prejudice that individuals hold in their minds, but has like a legal basis. So that's one of the things I, I want to demonstrate in the book. Uh, the definition of indigenous as minors comes from legal definitions in a loss of uh, the Indies, in, in a kind of the colonial uh, past of uh, Spain and, and Latin America. And also this... Um, definition that is colonial but persists in the 19th century of calling indigenous populations miserable. And that's very, very interesting. It's not only kind of a, an insult, it's a legal term. Miserable meant that they were, they had been, and in Latin American style, miserable is not meant to be racial, it's meant to be cultural. So the idea is that... Um, People have been degraded, their cultures have been degraded because of the colonial oppression so much that they are almost kind of not able to be uh, actors in their own kind of um, a way. And it's also about kind of language, um, like inintelligible or illegible language. It's about degradation of this population because of oppression and um the question of them not being able to represent themselves legally and having to be represented uh, by by uh, non-indigenous. Uh, and the Korea government used that, uh, or that kind of legacy had an impact in the Korea government. The Korea government claimed to represent indigenous people, and many people outside of Ecuador and inside believe that there is a continuity between... Um, between the Korea government and the indigenous uh, movements. Um, and that's where I also talk about academics and their role in all this, in kind of legitimizing these, these governments. So this idea of the summa causae, the good living uh, for the Korea government involved the, almost their right to represent indigenous people. Uh, because they were supporting in their development policies supposedly an, an ancestral Andean concept of way of life, um, which was very vague, as I demonstrate in the, in, the, in the book. So there was kind of this dichotomy between not accepting indigenous as actors, um, harassing their organization, harassing their leaders, uh, prosecuting and repressing them when they wanted to fight against mining or for the distribution of water and land, and at the same time claiming to represent them, which was very perverse in a way. And that's one of the dichotomies of the, of the, of the government, which you also find in interesting and sometimes different ways. Let's say in Bolivia, too, where um, Evo Morales was uh, talking internationally uh, against extraction and uh, uh, against... Uh, 
for kind of better policies to to improve climate change and at the same time was uh, promoting natural resource extraction in his own country and fighting indigenous groups that were resisting extraction. So you have these, these two things, talking for and at the same time not accepting them as, um, as actors. So I think this is very interesting because there is a whole also role for academics there in legitimizing these discourses that they argue come from the indigenous world, but I argue that there is never like an ethnography or an ethnohistory in which they demonstrate that, let's say, summa causae or good living is an indigenous concept. Mm. So, Many yeah, so I think that's <laughs> about in what's happening in Ecuador, how we can study this as academics, how this relates to wider uh, conversations and trajectories in throughout Latin America, uh, based on your previous research, um, things that are happening in other countries now. Um, and so I have to ask as my last question, um, you're, you know so much about this and you're clearly so invested in it. So now that this book is done, what are you working on now? Yeah, well, the first thing I was working on is translating the book to Spanish, <laughs> because uh, I, I mean, I, I some um, I hired some translators, but then I reviewed the translation, and that was a lot of work because I wanted the book to be available in Latin America and also to this very people who I'm talking about, like the, uh, particularly many indigenous people who don't have access to the English version. So that was my first project. But after that, I have like kind of two projects that are related to to my whole trajectory. And um, I think that you can see with the discussion that we have had, the importance of these kind of methods where you look at things comprehensively instead of focusing only on one side and the kind of connections that you can achieve a, I mean, there is a weak point of these methods, which is maybe you try to do too much. And, <laughs> but that's the kind of downside of it. But on the other hand, there is a side of connecting many things that that through kind of more traditional ethnographic methods you, you don't connect. But my two kind of projects now is one of them is to do a more theoretical work on paternalism and ventriloquism. Uh, putting together maybe my work in Mexico and, and Ecuador and kind of do a more kind of um, a specific article on that uh, uh, that can talk to kind of a larger debate on the importance of um, this for racism, interethnic relations and for ac- academics. That would be one project. And the second project is there have been very interesting developments in the indigenous movement in Ecuador. There have been two uh, uprises in 2019 and um, also this year. Uh, and uh, the developments that we are seeing in the... I mean, 2019, there is kind of uprisings throughout Latin America uh, that are connected to uh, the the economic crisis that comes after uh, the commodity boom ends, like around 2014, and then there is a, a very deep economic crisis in Latin America. And this crisis is actually deepened by COVID. So uh, you have this... Uh, groups, popular groups in Latin America that are really like um, on 
the edge of survival and it, there is a new turn to the left now with it that we have seen in Colombia and Chile, for instance, and uprisings in, in Mexico in a way is kind of more controversial maybe. And um, so, but the thing with the Ecuadorian indigenous movement is that there are groups within the movement that are more urban and that was one of the things that I kind of mentioned in my book that the indigenous movement had focused too much on the idea of, of the indigenous as subsistent agriculture, peasant, and as rural, but there are more and more urban. So these uh, people are more urban. And also, so they are the leader now, Leonida Sisa, is young, is urban, and he's more willing to ally with urban popular groups, but they are also more open to violent kind of strategies as opposed to just a... I mean, the indigenous, the, the historic indigenous movement in Ecuador is very much linked with liberation theology and with a, a passive, a, kind of, not, not passive, but a, a pacific ways of resistance coming from the ideas of Gandhi and Martin Luther King. So they were always a pacific social movement, a peaceful social movement in terms of their strategies. But this is changing. And I think it might be like a wider trend. So my two projects are uh, to study paternalism more in depth and maybe the upper classes and the uh, the white uh, mestizo groups and the elites. I do teach a class this semester entitled Latin American Elites, but the other project is to look at these changes on uh, ethnic movements becoming more urban and maybe more open to violent tactics, maybe because of this very, very deep economic crisis that uh, uh, is going on after uh, the end of the commodity boom and then after COVID. So the, those are my, my two ideas now. Very interesting um, and very much building on your work so far, um, which is super cool because there's clearly a lot to unpack there and investigate. Um, so while you are off working on both of those projects, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing uh, titled Undoing Multiculturalism, Resource Extraction and Indigenous Rights in Ecuador from the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2021. Dr. Carmen Martinez-Novo, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Miranda, for, for reading the book, for your very good questions. And also I saw like you do very cool things like working with neurodiverse students. So I'm also very happy to, to learn more about your work and your work in media and, and education. And I admire that too. So thank you I'm, very I'm very happy to have met you even if only <laughs> online. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.